0: Good morning morning. to those of you who call this church home welcome to you in the name of Jesus Christ and if you're visiting with us this morning welcome to you also in the name of Jesus Christ if you don't know who I am you're visiting here with us this morning my name is Chad I'm the pastor in training here you guys give me two weeks in a row Uh, thanks wow (laughs) wasn't expecting that honestly (laughs) Um, We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. As you heard, just read, we're in chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. In a moment of insane creativity on Wednesday morning, I sent the sermon title to Kelly, and I've titled the sermon, Love Your Enemies. Thank you. Yep, you caught the sarcasm. In 2008... There was a series of terrorist attacks that took place in Mumbai, India, that took the lives of over 150 people, including a well-known rabbi and his wife, who did a lot of good for the people there. And in commenting on how people should feel about these terrorists, a well-known American rabbi, his name is Shmuley Boteik, He said this in regards to the terrorists and the Christian command to love enemies. It's a long quote, but you can read along with me. He says this, As for my Christian brethren, who regularly quote to me Jesus' famous saying, Love your enemies. My response is that our enemies and God's enemies are different parties altogether. Jesus meant to love those who steal your girlfriend cut you off on the road, or swindle you in a business deal. But to love those who indiscriminately murder God's children is an abomination against all that is sacred. Is there a man who is human whose heart is not filled with moral revulsion against terrorists who target a rabbi who feeds the hungry? Would God or Jesus ask me to extend even one morsel of my limited capacity for compassion to fiends, rather than saving every last particle for their victims instead? Could God really be so unreasonable? And could Jesus be so cruel as to ask me to love baby killers? And would such a God be moral if he did? Could I pray to a God who loves terrorists? Could I find comfort in him knowing that he offers them comfort as well? No. Such a God would be my enemy. He would abide in Hades rather than heaven, and I would be consigned to hell. That's not the word he used. I would be consigned to hell before I would worship him. I will accept an eternity in purgatory rather than a moment of celestial bliss shared with these beasts. That is intense, is it not? Is he right? Is there a set range of loving our enemies that starts with girlfriend stealers and ends in business swindlers? No. We know he's not right. We know Jesus calls us to love our enemies, no matter who they are or what they've done. So that begs the question for us this morning who are my enemies? If we limit the application to the most obvious and direct within this context, it's those who hate us and persecute us for our faith. And if that's the case, then most of us are off the hook and we can remember to love them. I can pray now and we can go have an early lunch. We should love those who hate and persecute us. They would fall into the category of enemy. But we're going to see in the text this morning that our enemy could also be those who insult us, steal from us, ask us for things, those who don't love us, those who don't do good to us, those who won't lend to us or pay us back, those who aren't kind to us, those who aren't grateful towards us. In short, enemy is a broad category. That means anybody who crosses your path, who resists you, contradicts you, who crosses you, who antagonizes you, who makes life hard for you. It could be a rebellious child, a harsh boss, your spouse or your ex spouse, your spiteful neighbor who yells at you because of your dandelions. Anyone who, even in one moment or by their general existence, acts in such a way that causes your heart to say, enemy. Or those who think and act like you are their enemy. So whether it be persecutors or petty comments, spouses or spiteful children, we're called to love. And not just natural love, but supernatural, selfless, willing to suffer, not seeking revenge, love. Because those who have experienced God's great love and mercy show great love and mercy. Even to their enemies. So, before we look at the text together, join me in a word of prayer. Father, we we come again this morning, another Sunday morning, of the thousands of Sunday mornings we've attended, to worship you again, to hear from you, God, because we believe you speak to us through your word. And you call us this morning to something very hard that I have been convicted all week of uh, to love our enemies. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we can only do that because you first have loved us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. And because of the way that we've seen that you've treated us and offer your love to the world, I just pray that you'd help us really love our enemies well. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would apply this text to the hearts of your people in ways that I can't this morning, in ways that have felt overwhelming and too hard for me. We love you and praise you, Lord, and pray that you'd be glorified and honored and worship, worshiped in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we were in the Beatitudes and the Woes. I reminded us that we're to read them through a Christ centered lens in which we acknowledge that ultimate and eternal blessing comes from repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus Christ. And that for those in the kingdom who have done that, blessings continue. We're blessed as we experience financial and spiritual poverty, physical and spiritual hunger, weeping over the pain and suffering in this world, and persecution. Because we know there's coming a day when these pains will be reversed. And because we know that day is coming, we can even experience joy in the moment, which I really didn't talk about last week. That made the cutting floor. So the blessed life is found in following Jesus and embracing the kingdom of God mindset, suffer now, though there's still joy amidst it, and satisfaction later, or cross now, crown later. There are deep blessings in the kingdom of God now as we follow Jesus and someday when we live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And there was warning, as we saw in the woes. There's warning for those on the outside of the kingdom who don't love God, or associate with his son, Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Jesus moves in his sermon to talk about one of the most important subjects in all of scripture. Maybe we'd argue the most important subject in all of scripture, love. And not just general, natural love, supernatural love. Love for enemies. As those in the kingdom experience deep blessings here on earth, as they long for heaven, We are also to love in the same way that we have been loved. We in the kingdom are to be marked by Christ-like love for enemies, which is a much higher standard than those outside of the kingdom. So the structure this morning, there's going to be three points. We're going to see the command to love our enemies in verses 27 and 28. We'll see illustrations of how to love our enemies in 29 through 31, and then we'll see why we should love our enemies in verses 32 through 36. There's going to be multiple points under each of these main points, but I'll tell you about them as we get there. So first, let's look at the command to love our enemies in verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Jesus addresses those who hear. He's still preaching this sermon in the context of a large crowd. And since the text doesn't explicitly tell us he's addressing a different group, I believe he's still speaking to his disciples, but in the presence of the crowd. This is for the disciples and the crowd. He uses the statement he often uses before or after he tells a parable he who has ears, let him hear. You guys have read that many times, which means if you hear this message, you need to seek to understand it and respond appropriately. Those of you who are disciples and those who aren't disciples, listen up, pay attention, try to understand this, and then respond appropriately. So then he gives this command to love his love enemies and then three actions that we can do in order to love them. So first, where it says, love your enemies... Dan reminded this a few months ago of the four Greek words often that are used for love. So I'll be quick here. There's the Greek word storge, which means natural affection. Eros, which means romantic love. Philia, which means friendship love. And then there's agape love. And that's the word that's used here for love your enemies. Agape, your enemies. This is a faithful love, committed love. It's an act of the will. It's a sacrificial love that voluntarily suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the benefit of another without expecting anything in return. One author says, agape love is a deep, continuous, growing, and ever-renewing activity of the will superintended by the Holy Spirit. This is the supernatural love. So it's not a command to feel warm fuzzies about your enemies, it's a Holy Spirit-wrought act of the will to suffer for the benefit of another. This kind of love is hard to love anyone with, let alone our enemies. I'm convicted as I pore over this text this week. I don't often agape love my wife, you guys. I don't suffer naturally, easily for her. There are some similar commands in the Old Testament, but nothing so emphatic as Jesus says here. The law says in Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But as Judaism developed, one's neighbor was seen as someone with similar religious thinking, not one who was opposed and hostile. The natural inclination of the human heart, I would argue even the regenerate human heart, is to not love our enemies, even to hate them, or to at least just be indifferent to them. And the immediate context, and most direct application in these verses, and from verses 22 and 23 from last week from the Beatitudes, is that those who are persecuting us for our faith. But as I said, it applies to more than just those people. Our disposition our commitment should be to love them. Even as we recognize that in our sinfulness, our hearts are saying, you are my enemy. So Jesus tells us three ways we can specifically love our enemies. I'll say a brief word about each year will we'll consider do good, bless, and pray. So first, do good to those who hate you. Do good. Again, this brings to mind actions, not warm fuzzies. Do good. Act in ways that are loving to those who oppose you. We will see some examples, some illustrations in a moment, but if we didn't read on, we'd be left with a broad idea of supernatural kingdom love. Do good to the people who hate you. Second, he says, bless those who curse you. Don't repay insult for insult. Don't be a combative reactionary. Again, I see this often in marriage. Audrey and I say it's called putting your dukes up. She might say something to me that I feel disrespected or attacked, and the first thing I do is I put my dukes up and I take a jab back. We have to remind each other, whoa, let's put our dukes down. Let's not be combative reactionaries. In fact, not only should we not reciprocate an insult, we should respond in blessings. This would apply not just to those who persecute us, but anyone who says something bad to us or about us. How do you bless your boss or your spouse or your child who has just insulted you? Are you quick to spit fire right back? Do you hold your ground and seek to make them out to be the villain? Or do you forgive and seek to respond graciously? And when you walk away, do you ask God to bless them? To draw near to them and to save them and forgive them if they haven't been saved and forgiven by him? One author says the idea of blessing is to invoke God's favor on another's behalf. We see a negative example of this in Luke 9. When a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, listen to this. Luke 9, 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, the Samaritan village that rejected Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? How often do you think that? If you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. I didn't make that up. But there's also some positive examples we see in the Lord Jesus Christ and the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen. Jesus as he's dying on the cross in Luke 23, 34 says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As Stephen is having rocks thrown at him until he dies, Acts 7, 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So we see examples of what what not to do in James and John, even though we see it in our own hearts. And we see some examples of what to do in Jesus and Stephen. The next, he says, to pray for those who abuse you. This one is similar to the previous one, but calls us to a greater depth of intercession for those who abuse us. We aren't just to offer up a quick blessing to God for our enemies, but to pray for them. As much as we can think to pray, we pray for them. Have you guys heard the saying, hurt people hurt people? I just actually learned that like in the last year. It's a good one. As we are being hurt by someone, abused by someone, can we pray that God would heal the hurt in their hearts? and not hold it against them, but say something has happened in your past that has really hurt you, and I think you just took it out on me, and I'm not gonna hold that against you. Lord, heal that hurt in their hearts. We can ask God to help them know his love and the freedom that comes with accepting it through Jesus Christ. We can pray that God will put Christian friends in their lives to stir them up to seek him if they're not believers. One author says intercession to God for the opponent is one of the highest forms of love. Such love is tough love. Not because it requires harsh discipline against another as parental love might, but because it requires a sublimination of the self to such a great degree. A sublimination that is not normal for any human. So that's the the call, the the command, the imperatives to us from the Lord Jesus Christ of how his followers, those who are in the kingdom, are to treat their enemies, to love them, to do good to them, to bless them, to pray for them. And then Jesus gives us some illustrations of ways that we can love our enemies. So that's the second point. This is verses 29 through 31. Here Jesus gives us four illustrations of how to love our enemies, and then he summarizes with the golden rule. As we consider all of these illustrations between verses 29 and 31, it's important to note that these are not absolute precepts with no exceptions, but illustrations of principles. They shouldn't be understood as absolute rules, but should be understood for the spirit that they embody. So first he says to turn the other cheek, verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. The idea here doesn't convey a beating, but most likely a slap, even a backhanded slap that's intended as an insult, though it still could apply in beatings. But Jesus isn't saying under no circumstance can you defend yourself. He himself and the apostle Paul give verbal defenses when they are unlawfully beaten. The point here is to be quick to, re- to forgive and to not respond with a desire to get even. We should be willing to suffer and to continue to surrender more and more. If someone strikes you, what are you prone to do? Hit them back. If it's verbally, if it's physically, we want to hit them back. Or at least to self-protect. To say, oh, you hit me, I'm out of here. I'm I'm never going to allow myself to be put in that situation again. And the point here is... Love means you don't feel the need to defend your rights and you accept the wrongs done to you by being willing to forgive, willing to turn around a second time and still offer help, even if it means being abused yet again. One author says, in the context of religious persecution, offering the other cheek means continuing to minister at the risk of further persecution, as Paul does many times in the book of Acts. Our love for enemies should cause us to be willing to suffer for their benefit as much as we can, even as they insult us, without seeking revenge. Again, when you, when your spouse, your boss, your coworker insults you, do you fire back? Maybe not to their face, but then you go tell all your other coworkers how you've just been treated. That's pretty much the same thing, or do you forgive? And not seek revenge. One of the ways I think we seek revenge is making sure everyone knows how we were treated. Tarnish their reputation a little bit. That's convicting for me. Next, in the second half of verse 29, it says, And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. In modern language, this would say, If someone takes your coat, give them your t-shirt as well. Again, it's, it's a call not to seek revenge but to give generously even if the people take from you. It reminded me of this really powerful scene in the movie Les Miserables. I hope you guys have seen it. It's really good. There's two versions. There's a newer one where they sing the whole thing. That one's not quite as good as the one where they don't sing the whole thing. But you can <laughs> throw something at me now if you want. But there's this guy, Jean Valjean. And he's a bad guy, he's a thief, he's a robber, and he's about to sleep outside because he's homeless, because of the choices he's made, his whole life have been horrible. And a priest sees him and says, don't sleep outside tonight, come into my church building, and I have food for you, I have wine for you, he says, to revive you, I have a warm fire for you, and I have a bed for you. And Jean Valjean's like, okay, cool, yeah, thanks has a great meal, warms up, goes to bed in a nice bed in the middle of the night. He decides, I'm going to steal the silverware, literally the silverware. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to go sell it, trade it, continue my life of theft and sin. So the next day comes and he's caught by the police and the police bring him right back to this priest. And the police say, This guy was presumptuous enough to say that you gave him the silverware. And it doesn't show it, but you picture this moment of the priest thinking, what am I gonna do in this situation? I can demand justice, we can throw him in prison. But he makes a a game time decision and says, I did give him the silverware. You need to undo his handcuffs right now, let him free. I gave him that silverware. And then he looks at Jean and says, I gave you the candlesticks as well and they're worth way more. Why didn't you take those? And he goes and gets the candlesticks and puts them in his bag. The police walk away and you picture Jean, you see him, he's, he's almost crying. He's like, why did you just do this for me? He's totally shocked. And we can argue about theology, but the priest says, I've bought you back for God. But the point is, This gift, this generous gift after you've stolen something has broken that hard heart, Sean. And you see, this is the the turning point of the movie. He says, I'm broken. I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't understand what just happened to me, but I don't want to live that way anymore. Grace is what transforms a person. Unexpected, undeserved, unexplainable grace. Grace. And I would argue that's one of the points of this text, that I'm not going to do a good enough job bringing out. We should love our enemies no matter what. They're not a notch on our belt. When they reject Jesus Christ, we're not off the hook of loving them. But God does use us as conduits of his grace. And when we treat our enemies like this, maybe he's using us to win them over. Whether it's an unbeliever who's coming to Jesus for the first time or a a stuck-in-sin spouse. Oh, I forgot my Kleenexes, too. I have to hold it together. Next, he says, give to everyone who begs from you. That word beg can mean beg or borrow. And this illustration and the next are in the present tense, meaning we should always be ready to respond in these ways. The aspect of borrow means this isn't only referring to, to street panhandlers, and in the context of enemy love, maybe more of a reference to giving to them and not a general rule. Thank you, Diane, so much. Not a general rule for when every time a homeless person asks you for money, you can practice discernment. Maybe the best thing for them isn't to give them money, but to find another way to help them more than that. But if an enemy asks for money or practical goods or whether to borrow, um, we should respond in generosity because that's a concrete expression of love. Next, second half of verse 30, it says, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Again, generosity that flows from the heart is to be the disposition of the disciple. Our hearts, by God's grace, if we can manage it, are to be willing to let our goods go, even when they're stolen from us, and without a desire for revenge. So let me, let's consider these commands, these illustrations, I should say, as a group. Remember, they aren't to be read and understood as absolute rules with no exceptions. They're principles that encourage us to have a heart disposition of forgiveness and a lack of desire for revenge. We aren't in sin if someone is beating us up, mugging us, and we don't turn the other cheek. We aren't in sin if we don't give material goods every time to someone who asks. We aren't in sin if someone steals our car and we file a police report and try to get it back. The call is, by God's grace, to love those who do those kinds of things to us and to show that, show that love through generous forgiveness and mercy, not seeking revenge. Even as we seek justice, may it flow from a heart to love our offender and seek their best. Sometimes something happens, we get punched, a car gets stolen, and we want the judge to throw the book at him. Stole my car, 60 years in prison. The call here is, judge, sir, ma'am, whatever is best, can we rehab this offender? I, I want justice, but I want the best for that person too. That leads us to the golden rule, which summarizes these illustrations in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is another way of saying love your neighbor as yourself. But saying it this way shows that the command to love neighbors applies to our enemies. It is often said that many cultures and other worldviews have a version of the golden rule but they're all stated in the negative where Jesus' command is in the positive. Now that's a slight overgeneralization, but the comparison is still helpful. The golden rule stated negatively in other cultures would say don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. What you hate, don't do to other people. I read a lot of examples. If that is all we do though as kingdom citizens, we don't actually do any good to others. We just don't do anything bad. And that is not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to do good to others. What we would want done to ourselves to treat others with the same consideration that we want to be treated with. Sometimes, yes, that does mean abstaining from doing something like if someone hits us, we don't hit them back, but it also means selflessly going out of our way to do something good for them. As we interact with others, even those who are our enemies, we are to think, how would I want this person to be treating me and then treat them that way? So those are the illustrations of how to love our enemies. Now let's look at why, why we should love our enemies, verses 32 through 36. There are four reasons why we should love our enemies. They're right there. We're called to a higher standard. There's reward. It's evidence of our sonship and because the triune God loves his enemies. So first, we're called to a higher standard and it uses the word, then sinners, often in these verses. Even sinners do that. Enemy love is a high calling. Just like the Beatitudes and woes last week, Jesus compares those in the kingdom with those outside. And it's not as if those inside the kingdom aren't sinners. We are. The Bible teaches that everyone is a sinner. But there's a big difference between having your sins forgiven and not being enslaved to them and being able to love like this and not having your sins forgiven, and being a slave to sin, and not being able to love like this. Those verses say even unbelievers love those who love them. They do good to those who do good to them. They lend to those from whom they expect to be repaid or someday be able to get a loan from them back. It's natural. That's a natural kind of love. The basis for this kind of natural love is based on the guarantee of reciprocation. I'll love you if you love me. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's a tit-for-tat kind of love. And those in the kingdom are called to supernatural love, costly and difficult, agape love. We are called to love those who don't love us, to do good to those who have done evil to us, to lend to those who can't or won't pay us back. The world standard is not enough for the follower of Jesus. This kind of love, agape love, love for enemies, is what sets us apart. Do you see this kind of love in your heart? I hope you do if you follow Jesus, even if just a little bit, this has been a hard week for me because I see how rare this is in my heart at times. I was joking with the guys an hour ago when we were praying. I'm going off notes here, but last night after our hangout, nine o'clock, I get cut off by two people and I'm flashing the brights. Not once, not twice, like 10 times, like boom, and my wonderful wife looks over at me and says, how's that sermon coming? <laughs> oh man, God bless her. And seriously, I'm about to preach on this in 12 hours. And I'm flashing the bright to someone who didn't even cut me off that bad. It's humbling being a preacher, you guys, because we just see how bad we fall short and we don't have it figured out and we're with you and we need Jesus. Now I have no idea where I am in my notes. <laughs> Do you see this kind of love in your heart? Yeah kind of, but not enough. Do you, do you love the person that has treated you horribly? Man, I can think of someone in my past who I'm still trying to forgive five years later. Do you love that person? Do you, do you pray for them? Do you wish the best? Do you actively try to do good for them, even if you don't see them anymore? When that thing makes you think of them, do you pray for them and say, they don't owe me a debt. God, help me not view that person In combination with what they did to me, that is hard. I've experienced that. That's really hard. Or the group of people that hates you because of your worldview. Do you love them? They hate you because of your worldview. They hate that you believe marriage is between one man and one woman. Do you love them? It would be enough if the only reason we're called to this kind of love is because Jesus commands it because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. But it's not. Guess what? There's reward. Multiple times in verses 32 through 35, we see the words benefit and credit and reward in relation to love of enemies. The words benefit and credit are the same Greek word, charis, which means grace. What grace is it to, if you only love those who love you? The word reward means it's, it's used of the fruit naturally resulting from toils and endeavors. Like the Beatitudes and the woes before this passage, we're encouraged and motivated that because of what Jesus has done, we're guaranteed the reward of heaven. We will be with him someday by sight, in the new heavens and the new earth. And the reward of heaven is not just being with God, it is, but it will also be hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. God will acknowledge our faithfulness, that that our walk as kingdom citizens glorified him, not, not in a way of earning or meriting salvation, but that the fruit we bore was indicative of his saving work in us and for us. And there's reward in that. We can't wait to be with him and to hear, you were faithful, my child. And when we love our enemies, the next why is it's, it's evidence of our sonship but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Just like the Beatitudes, the idea here isn't love your enemies and you will become sons of the most high. But because you are sons of God through faith, you are the blessed of the kingdom As you love your enemies, you show your relationship to God as your father. A heart made new, forgiven, and adopted wants to be like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. We see this even in our human relationships. Parents, don't you see this? Your kids want to be like you. There are ways where All my kids, boys and girls, want to be like me, but Zeke especially in some ways wants to be like me, and Callie really wants to be like Ada. I haven't pushed my kids into sports, though I used to be an athlete and still am. I haven't told them, you will believe in God, you will believe in Jesus. I I don't believe in that. I'm not going to force that on them. But guess what my kids love? They love track and field. They love hockey. They love reading their Bibles, even though they can't read. Zeke kinda can now, but it's the cutest thing. Callie gets her little Bible on the couch in the morning and starts highlighting verses like we do. She has no idea what she's highlighting. She, her Bible's all marked up, but she wants to be like mommy and daddy. Her Bible's full of highlights. It's, it's the sweetest thing. I'm a preacher. It's what I wanna be when I grow up. I've never told Zeke, my oldest son, I want you to be a preacher. You should be a preacher. But one day, while I was the intern at the crossing, I heard Zeke talk, I brought him to work with me, and I heard him talking behind me. And I took a short video, it's a secret video, you can see my arm in it, but I'm about to show you guys this precious video, if we have it queued up, to illustrate the point and just explode your hearts. So, the next one is for Sierra. That which one. Kid. Oh, that's a good old word. Oh I'm just gonna be it right now. Huh. Wow. Verse 19. There's nothing to be scared of as God. There's nothing to be afraid of as God is not. God is with us wherever we go. And that wherever we go, he saves us. Back to our home if he wants to. If there's nothing to be afraid of, they never delightful. Second zero. If there's nothing to be afraid of, and you didn't require bad guys. The, the, <laughs> yep, holding back tears. <clears throat> I've never pushed that on him. That makes my heart explode. But I'm a sinner. Zeke wants to be like me. I've sinned against Zeke. If he wants to be like his father, how much more do we want to be like our heavenly father who has loved us perfectly, who has never sinned against us because he can't sin? We we want to be like him, don't we? We see that beautifully illustrated in our kids. Which takes us to the final and and most important reason we are to love our enemies. Because the triune God loves his enemies. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Every human being is or was an enemy of God. We're all born as traitors terrorists to the glory of God. We live for ourselves, we demand our own way. The only person we have loved personally, perfectly, and perpetually is ourselves. And that's the love we owe to God. We've spit in his face and our lives say things like, God is not great, he's not satisfying, he's not good, he's not worthy, he's not worthy to be loved and obeyed and glorified. And this is what the Bible calls sin, friends. And he is infinitely holy, okay? He's infinitely holy. And so the tiniest little sin is worthy of eternal separation from him, deserving of his eternal wrath. But God, throughout the Bible, right? But God, he's kind and he's merciful and he's loving, and he loved us. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If you're not weeping literally, I hope your hearts are weeping. Because that is amazing news, friends. Brothers and sisters and those here who aren't Christians, the, to accept and believe the good news, you have to know the bad news. You're, you are an enemy. You, you may be right now, you are an enemy of God. But he says, Come, be my son, my daughter, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins. Man, I think about my story, I think about the way I lived as an enemy of God, a terrorist to his glory, and I can't not read this stuff and cry. How could he forgive me? How how could he not treat me in the way that I deserved? Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And his kindness and mercy and love have brought me and you, if you're in Christ, to repentance. Without overstating it, God's love for his enemies has changed the world. And it's changed my life and it's changed yours. Because I, though once God's enemy, have been transformed By God's great love and mercy, I want to show great love and mercy to my enemies in hope and pray that grace will transform them as it has me. Those who have experienced the great love and mercy of God will show great love and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for loving us, though we were once your enemies. You have redeemed us through Christ, and you call us sons and daughters, and no longer are we enemies, but we're children, heirs of an amazing inheritance, which chiefly, Lord, is you. We're humbled and worship this morning at seeing the way that you've loved us, and pray that, Lord, you would help us love our enemies, whether that be those who persecute and hate us, or even spouses and children and bosses and even people who cut us off. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We rejoice in you this morning and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, Savior, King, Treasure. Amen.